We are in the book of 1 Timothy. This is our second message in our series. We tackled verses 1 to 11 last week. Today we're doing 12 to 20, finishing up the chapter. And uh, if you would turn there with me, we're going to start off by reading it this morning, and then we'll go from there. Verse 12 says this, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. May God bless the reading of his word. And do you ever have bad dreams? Those dreams that wake you up in the middle of the night, and you're sweaty, and you're panicked, and you're just trying to calm yourself down, telling yourself, okay, it wasn't real, it was just a dream. They're, they're, they're nightmares, right? Some nightmares are made of monsters, and they're made of villains. Other dreams turn into nightmares when we find ourselves in awkward situations or humiliating situations, right? Like when you're, you're, you're sitting down in class and, and, you're, and you're realizing, I didn't study for the test. I didn't even know we had a test. Or, or I, everyone's turning in this assignment. Oh my gosh, I forgot about this assignment. It's worth 50% of my grade. And you panic. Or what about those dreams where you're going to work or to school or to the grocery store and you're, you're talking with people and you're doing your thing and then all of a sudden you look down and you realize you forgot to put on clothes this morning. <laughs> those, are, those, are, those are frightening dreams. Or what about, um, this happens for me, the dreams where you, you're, you're going to get up and you're going to give a presentation and you open up your notes and you realize, oh, this is my, my daughter's homework. What am I going to do? And one by one, people just start walking away. Yeah, I'm done with this guy. He does not have it together. How about this? Having, having the worst things you have ever done put on display for all the world to see. That's no dream, right? That's more like a nightmare. The Apostle Paul's past was a sort of of nightmare. 
Now, Paul began his letter to Timothy talking about false teachers, talking about those who were teaching a different doctrine. They were emphasizing myths. They were emphasizing genealogies. They were using the law in a way that the law shouldn't be used. And really what they were doing was puffing themselves up with the law and saying, look, I follow this and this and this, and I do that and that and that, and you can too. We can be people that God is happy to have on his team because we are so incredibly good. And Paul says, that's not the right use of the law. The right use of the law is to look at it and realize, I'm not keeping this. I'm not doing a good job here. In fact, I'm doing a miserable job, and woe is me, I I'm in trouble because I can't do this on my own. That's what Paul says the good use of the law is. And he encourages Timothy to hold on to what is right. Teach what is true. He goes on in his letter to talk about um, um, holding fast, fighting the good fight proclaiming that good news. Here in our passage this morning, though, Paul takes himself and he lays himself out on the examination table so that we can see just how bad he has been, just how horrible of a life he has lived. Why would anyone do that? Why would, why would anyone voluntarily do that? Now, I can understand a confession like that happening after someone has been caught or they've been found out. Maybe you've watched uh, those, uh, those mystery kind of movies where, where someone gets found out, like uh, those old Columbo films, and, and Columbo's asking him questions throughout the whole movie, and then finally gets them to the point where they're so exasperated they'll realize he's on him, and they're just like, all right, Columbo, I did it. I'm the one that put the frog in the teacher's desk. It was me. Or, or um, okay, uh, yes, I did it. I planned the whole thing. I, I'm the one who, who put that little bit of, of cyanide in my husband's grapefruit juice each and every morning, and you saw him slowly deteriorate. Now he's gone. Yeah, it was me. I, you, you got me. Or I'm the one who bonked him on the head, and I tied him up, and I threw him in that bag filled with rocks, and I dumped him over. I'm that guy. Or I'm the one that put the alligator in her swimming pool, and uh, that didn't go so well for her, did it? I, I'm the one. You found me out. Okay, now I confess. Now we understand that. But that's not what Paul's doing here. He hasn't been found out. He, he's, he's writing a letter to Timothy, and he's just given Timothy instructions on how to lead the church while he's away. Timothy, do this, do that. Why is Paul now airing his dirty laundry? Why, why is he doing this? Is he doing it just to show off? He's like, Timothy, you know, these people over here think they're pretty bad. Let me tell you my past here. I was a bad dude. Is he doing that? No, he's not doing that. He does it to show just how good the good news is and how glorious the one is who makes it all possible. And the way you do that the best is you come to grips with how bad you are. 
What Paul wants Timothy, the church in Ephesus, and even us to see is that while the wrong use of the law and the pursuits of this secret, special knowledge, all they produce is bad fruit. They produce controversies, they produce speculations, pride, division, etc., etc. On the other hand, the gospel of Jesus, (laughs) it produces good fruit. It is the power to rescue, to restore, to transform, to make useful even the worst thing that you ever did. It brings salvation rather than condemnation. It turns shameful pasts into into reasons that catapult us to worship God even more than we ever dreamed or imagined. Paul exposes his sin for all of us to see so that we see God for who he really is, how awesome he is. It's all for his glory. Take a look at where Paul says he is now and where he was in the past. Paul says in verse 12 that he has been appointed to Christ's service. In his mind, this is a very remarkable thing. Considering his past, this is something that shouldn't have happened. Now, some people, they find themselves in some type of subservient role, doing some menial task, and they're saying, you know what, this is so far beneath me. I shouldn't be picking up this trash. Why am I cleaning these bathrooms? Are you kidding me? Do you understand that I, I signed up, I volunteered for this cause so that they could make use of my incredible skills? Of, 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 of maybe my name, my reputation, or my money. I, w- I signed up to do something honorable here, and they have me mopping up in the kitchen. What? Paul doesn't have that attitude. Instead, Paul is absolutely astonished that he should be serving at all. And on top of that, he, he's amazed that he's given the strength to do it. He mentioned that in verse 12. I'm making the strength here. He knows he couldn't have done it on his own. God's given him all he needs to do the work that God has called him to do. He's even given him the grace to do it faithfully. He says, God God found me faithful. He's not saying that, you know, God was looking for a faithful servant. He found me and, hey, well, you know, look, here I am. I'm available. Oh, God, aren't you lucky? No, 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 no. He's only faithful. The only reason he's faithful at all is because of God. Why is Paul so thankful here? because he's fully aware of his past. He's fully aware of it. He acknowledges it. There's no denying it. And he's also aware of who he is now. He's totally inadequate in and of himself. In the past, Paul was a blasphemer, we read, a persecutor, an insolent opponent of Christ and his people. What a resume. And imagine, uh, I, I think back to when, when I was uh, interviewing for this position here, two and a half, three years ago or so, and I was sitting down in a room. Imagine if they, they asked me, okay, Jared, uh, can you share with us some of your work history? And I said, well, let me think. You know, I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was an insolent opponent. And everyone looks around the room and they go, oh, okay, um, Anyone else have a question to ask Jared? I would have been out of the race before I was even out of the gate. But in Paul's case, this was his life. This is who he is. There's no denying it. When Paul stood before King Agrippa, 
he made his defense to the king. He said this in Acts 26, 9. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. (laughs) Paul wasn't some cowardly critic getting online and writing his scathing remarks. He wasn't posting things on social media where it's safe to do so and no one's really going to hurt you or anything like that. He's, he was out there. He was doing it. He was putting himself completely into it, kind of like a, a member of the Nazi Gestapo. You've seen those movies, right? People are calmly going about their business and all of a sudden one of these Gestapo people come, show up and everyone knows who they are. They're dressed in plain clothes. Everyone knows who it is, and they start asking questions. They start digging a little bit, scratching a little bit, hoping that someone is going to say something to tip them off, to, to, to show them that they're actually an enemy of the state, and then they're going to nab them. They're going to throw them in that black car, and they're going to haul them off. That's more of what Paul was like. He was like German secret police out there to root out and arrest and eliminate those enemies of the state. He was a blasphemer, we read. He spoke slanderous things about the Messiah, about the anointed one, about Jesus, and he tried to coerce other people to do it. You, do, you, do you really believe in Jesus? Are you serious? Yeah? Uh, you, don't, you don't believe in Jesus, do you? No, because if you believe in Jesus, then you're coming with me. And it's not going to go well. You hear what happened to those other guys last week? Yeah, that's going to happen. You don't believe in Jesus. Why don't you just curse his name right now and and we'll just let this slide by. I'll, I'll leave. You can go on doing what you're doing. He tried to get other people to blaspheme. He was a persecutor. Acts 8 3 says, But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Acts 9.1 says that he was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He was a blasphemer. He was a persecutor. He was an insolent opponent. What does that mean? It means that he was a violent aggressor. He didn't give a rip about human dignity, about human honor. The word used here, it indicates a person who has a violent contempt, a desire to mistreat Others. In other words, this wasn't a guy just doing an unpopular job, just getting by. Yeah, I'm sorry, you're going to have to come with me. I know it's hard, I know it's unfair, I know whatever, but you know, I have to feed my family too, so come along with me. He wasn't that guy. He was a guy who actually enjoyed inflicting pain and suffering on others. He's like that kid. You know those kids. They go into the kitchen, they get that little thing of salt, and they go out and find a snail, a slug. He's like one of those kids. He's like the kid that gets the BB gun, and he goes out and tries to find those beautiful songbirds singing that, that wonderful music, and he's pelting them. He's that guy who finds the neighbor's cat and douses it in kerosene and then watches it as it runs around in circles, screaming, blazing on fire. He was that guy, only he wasn't doing it to animals. He was doing this to people made in God's image, tormenting them, persecuting them, laughing 
showing approval will it happen? What do you think of Paul now? This was a person who many of us wouldn't hesitate to say, this guy's not right in the head. He needs some therapy right now. In fact, if he was, we were sitting down with him, he's given us his resume, we're not thinking, oh, you know, he's probably not qualified for the job. We're thinking, how can I get my cell phone out here and dial 911 and get this guy locked up as fast as I possibly can? No wonder Ananias and the disciples, after, after Paul came to Christ, it, they were like, what? You're not coming to my house. You can see why there would be reluctance there. Paul had no qualifications for God to appoint him to his service. Yet he had ever qualification, didn't he? Because he had been the recipient of God's mercy and God's grace. Twice he says in this passage here that he received mercy. Once in verse 13, once in verse 16. Rather than being locked up and tortured for his sins, he was spared the punishment that he deserved. That's what mercy is. God's mercy is when people don't get what they deserved. He was also given grace. He says that in verse 14. The grace of our Lord overflowed for me with a faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So whereas mercy is not getting what you deserve, grace is is getting something that you don't deserve. And Paul was given God's grace. He's shown this incredible kindness, given this incredible privilege, all these riches that, that he didn't deserve. All, and it's all because of who Christ was, not because of who he is. And kind of like someone who, who um, after months and months of painstaking uh, work, discovered the cure for COVID-19, maybe even in their garage. But then you get the credit for it. And you get all the money for it. You get all the fame. You get all the recognition. It's kind of like that. Because of Jesus, Paul was given all kinds of good. And he says it overflowed. It overflowed. If you were with us for our study in Genesis, we talked about the Nile River. And how that Nile River often would overflow. And the waters would spill out into these irrigation channels, and they would, they would, they would water all of these crops. And so it was a place where there was, there was fertile stuff, fertile soil, a rich soil, and, and plants just thriving, food everywhere. That's what it was like, the outpouring of God's grace on Paul's life. An astonishing turn of events. I should have been condemned. But instead, I've been forgiven, and I've even been appointed to actually serve. Can you believe it? It's amazing. Isn't this the opposite of what's happening in our world today? Now, people aren't given grace and mercy, are they? Instead of, the word, the word today is, get on the right side of history, believe what we believe, or we're going to cancel you. You've seen that, haven't you? Actually, you know what? It doesn't even matter if you change your tune and now believe what I believe. If we find even the slightest thing, a word spoken, something you did, somewhere where you were quoted, something you wrote online, maybe it's a picture of you with someone else, we don't like it, you know what we're going to do? We're going to oust you from your job, we're going to delete you from the history books, and we're going to make sure that you regret it for the rest of your life. 
What a wonderful world we live in, right? It's incredible. Where's the grace? Where is the mercy? It's not there. If Paul was alive today, he wouldn't stand a chance. It doesn't matter what good things he's doing now. Look at what he did back then. He would be finished. Over. In fact, should we even be reading these letters that he's, he's written here? Most of the New Testament, we should just rip that out of our Bible. Because you know what? Do you know what Paul did in his past? That's what Paul wants us to see. He wants us that, that contrast to burn in our minds. He's voluntarily here bringing out into the light the dark days of his past. What politician does that? He's bringing them out so that we'll see just how shocking and wonderful the goodness, not of himself, but the goodness of God really is. The good news of Jesus Christ is the best news ever. It's the news that we need today. We need it now more than I think we've ever needed it. The good news is what the church needs to protect right now. They need to hold on to, they need to stand firm in, and they need to get it out there. And if you are a believer and you know the good news, you need to get it out there. You need to get it out there to your neighbors. You need to get it out there to the people at the grocery store. In fact, you need to get it out there to yourself. Because with all the voices yelling at you each and every day, if you don't have the gospel of Jesus and his mercy and grace on the forefront of your mind and applied to your heart, then you're going to find yourself spiraling, spiraling downward. The gospel is precious. My friends, there's a worldview that's becoming more and more popular each day in our world. And it's being adopted by, by governments, by, by schools, by, well, even pastors. It's this idea that the real hope for our world, it's found in humiliating, in persecuting, in canceling anyone you feel has used their power, either knowingly or unknowingly, against you or people like you. That's where salvation, that's where deliverance is, is found in our world. That's what people are believing and buying into and preaching these days. And guess what? That is not hope. That is not hope. You know what that does? All it does is turn victims into victimizers. And it turns those who have been oppressed unjustly treated, horribly treated. It turns the oppressed into oppressors. How is that good news? How is that healthy? How is that going to rebuild our nation? How is that going to bless your life and bring unity and peace to relationships, to your family members, to your friends, to, to your coworkers? The one and only real hope for our world one and only real hope is in individuals coming to the point where they acknowledge and confess their rebellion against their maker. And they embrace the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ. And they're transformed from being lovers of self into lovers of God and people who have been made in God's image. That's where the hope is. 
need to see that. We need to hold on to it. We need to get it out there. If a man like Paul was shown grace and mercy by a perfect, all-powerful, all-knowing God, then how much more should we fellow imperfect people forgive our neighbors? Our world is desperately, desperately needing forgiveness right now. Now, someone might say, I'm looking at this passage here, and I see something that, that is a problem. It's in verse 13. I'm having trouble understanding this. Paul says that he was shown mercy, but he says that it's because he had acted ignorantly in unbelief. It, it kind of seems like Paul's throwing all this dirty laundry out on the table, but then he's trying to excuse it away, saying, you know what, I, I was actually forgiven all that stuff because I, 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 I acted in, in unbelief. Is that what Paul is trying to say here? Is, he, is it kind of a bait-and-switch thing going on here? The answer is no, it's not. It's not at all. All Paul is doing here is, is pointing out that the horrible sins of his past, that they were a result of his lack of understanding of the truth. And remember, that's what he's telling Timothy. you got to keep pure. you got to hold on to. It's the truth here. That's what matters. you got to make sure that the truth that you're preaching, the truth that is being taught in your church, it is actually the truth. Because when you don't have the truth and you act in unbelief, then you're blowing it. His eyes hadn't yet been opened. He was blinded by his sin. He thought that he was actually serving God, when in reality, he was doing the opposite of what God wanted him to do. Every effort that he made in his unbelief, that was actually counterproductive to his master's work. And ultimately, it just inflicted guilt upon himself. Paul thought he was doing the right thing. He thought he was serving the one true God by stamping out this false teaching, stamping out heresy here. But that doesn't take away his guilt. He still says, I was a blasphemer, I was a persecutor, I was an insolent opponent, I was speaking evil against God, I was fighting against God's plan. But you know, all of that changed. When on, on that road to Damascus, on his way to do more persecuting, his eyes were blinded as he was met by that intense light, and he spoke with God. He didn't continue to resist that. In fact, the Holy Spirit said, come, and he did a 180 turn and surrendered his life to Jesus. You know, sin and unbelief, they go hand in hand, don't they? At the cross, what did Jesus say? Do you remember? He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. That's the nature of sin, isn't it? It, it, it blinds, it, it encrypts the truth and pre prevents us from seeing things for what they really are. But God said in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 16, I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know. In paths that they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These things I do, and I do not forsake them. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. 
Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Again, in Luke 4.18, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. Jesus came to give sight to the blind. It's a good thing he did, because blindness to God's truth, it is rampant. It's part of the human condition. Every single human being has that until the Spirit of God opens their eyes to the truth. As Jesus spent time with his disciples in the upper room after he rose from the grave, he told them that people like Paul were coming. He said, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And isn't that the way things seem to be going these days? People think they're doing the right thing. I read it just this morning. A decision was made. Something that is clearly opposed to the Bible and what the Bible teaches. And the person who presented it, who pushed it forward, said, this is, it's about time we did the righteous thing. It's incredible. People are clearly ignorant of what the Bible teaches. They're actually pointing fingers at Christians, people who love this book, people who pattern their lives after it, who surrender their lives to Christ, and they're saying, you guys are the ones who are, are hateful and bigoted and, and doing everything that is against what Jesus taught here. And they're doing it in ignorance. It's so frustrating and exasperating. Yet our response shouldn't be, shouldn't be anger, shouldn't be retaliation. You know, our response should be our response should be prayers on behalf of those who are like Paul, like Saul of Tarsus. People who need their eyes opened, that their hearts will be convicted and their souls will be surrendered to Jesus. If a man is lost as Paul can be found, then we should be very, very hopeful that no one is so far gone that they can't be brought into the light. In fact, you know, the darker the past, the more brilliant God's overcoming, transforming work is seen to be. Paul writes in verse 15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. It's incredible. Sin is gross, isn't it? <laughs> it, it it's really gross. That's what the Pharisees thought. They didn't associate with sinners. They don't want to have anything to do with sinners. They'd be caught dead before they were hanging out with sinners. In Luke 5.30, they confront Jesus. And they say, why do you eat and drink with these tax collectors and, and sinners? Remember the woman who came in, barging in, and began washing Jesus' feet with her tears and her, and her hair. And they said in disgust, they said, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who were, is touching him, for she's a sinner. When they wanted to make it clear that it, there was no way possible that Jesus was God's anointed one, they struck a blow at his reputation, and you know what they called him? They called him a friend, a friend of tax collectors 
and sinners. What a, what a disgusting display. Hanging out with sinners? You really going to do that? You're going to get those, those sin germs on you? You're going to let their, the guilt and the shame rub off on you so that other people begin to question whether or not you might actually be one of them. Or maybe you're endorsing, maybe you're encouraging the things that they do. Ah, oh, how could you? You know, Paul's thought the same way. He considered himself a Hebrew of Hebrews. He even called himself a Pharisee in Philippians chapter 3, verse 5. But here in Timothy, 1 Timothy 1.15, he makes the shocking statement, absolutely shocking, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's good news. That's the gospel. Man, were those Pharisees wrong. They thought that for God to love you, you had to measure up as perfectly as possible. Little did they know that their efforts to achieve that, that, that level of perfection, they're actually just stinking themselves up with self-righteous pride in their condemnation of others. They failed to see that they failed to see their failure. They failed to see that there is no failure that is so great that Jesus Christ cannot save. The people that you and I look at and we think they're just too far gone, too steeped in paganism, immorality, treaded too far down that path of darkness. Maybe they fought too hard against the Christian church or have influenced too many people to give up hope and to give in to the, the gluttony of a self-indulgent live-for-self kind of life. If so, we're wrong. 1 Timothy 1.15 is a testimony to the fact we're wrong. Because Christ came not to condemn, but to save sinners. Even the worst of the worst. Even guys like Paul. Even guys like me. Even people like you. Who is it that you look at and say, you know, there's no way that gal, that guy is ever going to be brought around? Who is it that you look at and pray that God strikes with COVID-19 or maybe even strikes dead rather than strikes with the irresistible reality of his saving grace? Some of the sweetest times I can remember as a youth pastor were times when we would Look at the lives of people who, who were singing popular songs or making these great movies or maybe even great leaders in the world. And, and we'd, we'd examine how it, what they were saying varied from what God's word says. And then, then we have a moment where we just stop. And we break all these kids up into groups. And they'd be praying for the salvation of these people. I remember, I remember walking by one group of, of junior hires and they're praying so desperately for, for Tom Cruise. I remember thinking, why don't I do that? Why don't I do more of that? Do I not believe that God can bring these people to himself? That they might experience that same grace and mercy that guys like me, guys like Paul, have experienced 
we may look at that list of sinners. You remember from the last week? That list of sinners in, in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. Paul lists off all these different sinful types of people. And we may look at that list and we might go, wow, those people are really bad. But you know what? Paul wasn't thinking that when he made that list. He was thinking, these are people who need Jesus. But you know what? I should be not only on that list, I should be at the very top of that list. In fact, my guilt far surpasses any of these other people on that list. Of all the people who have ever lived, who have been sinful, I am the chief. Someone to say, <laughs> some modern thinker might say, well, Paul has a really low self-esteem. Boy, we need to get that guy some help. We need to get him some therapy because that is just depressing. No. Paul's just being honest. And if we were honest with ourselves and we saw ourselves for who we really are, then we're going to recognize that we belong right on that list as well. That's where we all belong. And that leads us to ask another question. And this one's important. Have you ever taken a long, hard look in the mirror and you just think, no one else knows this, but I know it. I'm too far gone. I'm beyond help, beyond repair. Maybe you've been tempted to just embrace it, to sing it out loud like Billie Eilish is singing now. I'm a bad guy. What a sad, hopeless song. I watched an interview with her, and she was talking about how, how sad and discouraging and depressing the last year of her life has been. And I thought, well, that's even before COVID hit. It's tragic, a life without Christ. Don't forget, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And when he did that, that includes you. Some of the most powerful moments of my life has, have been when I'm sitting down with a person and, and, and they're coming to the point of the absolute end of themselves, the end of pride, the end of self-esteem, the end of self-sufficiency, of self-worth, the end of trying to fool themselves that they're they're better than they really are. And they, they exchange their brokenness and their hopelessness for the grace and mercy that Christ offers. And that's when the tears of joy start rolling down and whispers of praise start rising up. It's when they come to see that the darkness of their sin only makes the goodness of God appear all the more wonderful, all the more glorious. And Paul recalls who he was before Jesus invaded his life. And that's exactly where his mind goes. Verse 16, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever. And ever. You want to know what prepping, propping yourself up, trying to be good enough, you want to know what that says about God? It says you never really needed him in the first place. 
It just perpetuates the lie that we bought into all the way back in Genesis 3. On the other hand, a life that was hopelessly lost and completely powerless to save itself, that shouts of God's spectacular goodness and the power of Jesus Christ as, as Christ brings them from death to life, from darkness to marvelous light, it gives him glory. That's why Paul puts his life up on the examination table. He does it so that the world might see how good and glorious God is. He does it so that Timothy might engage in, uh, wage the good warfare and keep the church centered on Jesus Christ so people might avoid shipwrecking their faith like those two people he mentions, Hymenaeus and Alexander. He wants to keep them in awe of the gospel. What does your life say about God's glory? Does your life song, does it shout, sinner saved by grace? In one of his sermons, Alistair Begg uh, shares one man's prayer. He, he says this, O oh Lord, so far today, it has been very good. I've not been jealous, spiteful, resentful, critical. But I'm about to get out of my bed. That's my life. Each and every day, I have new failures to remind me of just how good the good news of 1 Timothy 1.15 really is. The saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Some of you may have heard of John Newton, the, the English slave trader whose life turned around, he became the English pastor, and he wrote a song that yeah, some people know, Amazing Grace. They say, written above the mantle of his doorway, where he would see this every time he woke up in the morning, eating breakfast, every time he had lunch, every time he sat down to dinner, and right before he went to bed, he would see this verse written there, Deuteronomy 15, 15, where it says this, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. You see, every day he wanted to be reminded of that reality that appointed him to how amazing God's grace is, the grace that he experienced in his life. Newton wrote his epitaph. You can go see it on his tombstone. It reads this, John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. Above everything else, he wanted it known that his life testified to the saving work of Christ. Paul wanted the same thing, didn't he? What do you want? The greatest song your life can sing is not how good of a person you were, but of how wonderfully good God has been.
May the testimony of each of our lives be that we have been saved by the matchless grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, the friend of sinners. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.